0: This is Tax Update number 5 for July 16, 2005. This tax update deals with the Self-Employed Health Insurance Deduction. This tax update is intended for tax professionals and is not designed for those not skilled in independent tax research. All readers and listeners are expected to do their own research to confirm items raised in this presentation before relying upon the positions presented. This podcast and this document may be reproduced freely so long as no fee is charged for the use of the document or the podcast. Such prohibited use would include using the podcast or document as part of a CPE presentation for which a fee is charged. We're going to talk today about the self-employed health insurance deduction. And we're talking about it because the IRS on June 17th released a chief counsel's notice that discussed a couple of issues related to this deduction. That guidance is found in a document that's available from the IRS website that you'll find in the documentation posted to the edzollers.com website. You can find the home page for this podcast at azollers.libsyn.com. That site has downloads for all the podcasts that we have done on this on these topics so far, as well as giving you some show notes related to what we're discussing on these various shows. The general rule Under Section 167L, provides us with the deduction for a self-employed individual for health insurance. That provision is found in Appendix 2 of the document, which you will download from that site. One of the reasons why this Chief Counsel memorandum is so interesting is there's been very little official or unofficial guidance from the IRS on how this provision works, and that's why this memorandum, which actually deals with the two rather simple issues and which really breaks no amazing new ground, has generated so much coverage in the tax press. Now, let's review the basic background here of how we got this provision. Self-employed individuals and those S-corporation shareholders who are treated as self-employed for employee benefits purposes, basically had a problem before the law was changed in 1986 and continued to have that problem to a certain extent until just recently. Section 106 allows an employer to provide tax-free to his employees health insurance coverage. However, that coverage rule does not extend to the self-employed or to the S-corporation shareholder treated as self-employed. There is no provision similar to what we find in qualified plans that treat these self-employed individuals as if they were employees of the entity or even in an S-Corp situation treated an employee as if they really were an employee. This provision was added in 1986 specifically to address this concern. Initially, it had provided only a partial above-the-line deduction, but since 2003, we've had 100% deduction if you qualify for this provision. However, there are few condi- while well, there are very few conditions on the 106 exclusion for an employer. There are a number of interesting restrictions found under 162L, and 162L2 contains most of them. This podcast is going to discuss those restrictions and what they may or may not mean. Now, the first limitation we find in 162L2A. Which limits its deduction to the taxpayer's earned income from the trader business to which the plan is established. The earned income being computed under Section 401c, borrowing from the qualified plan arena. Part of this is rather familiar. Uh, Section 106 requires an employer provided plan, so we have to have a plan that's linked to the employer. In this case, we need a plan linked to the trader business. Now, In the 106 arena, the IRS has taken a rather broad view of what counts as a plan, allowing employers to count payments made to employees to reimburse them for individual policies so long as the employer required proof of payment. As well, the employer can simply pay these individual policies on behalf of the employee. See Revenue Ruling 61-146 and 75-241 for some of the details of these requirements. Now, so it's clear while traditional group health plan written by an insurance carrier qualified for the exclusion and would qualify under 162L, uh, the group plan is not a prerequisite. Now, caveat, this podcast only deals with the tax aspects. My understanding from talking with some people in other states is that, in fact, there may be state law insurance issues, and there may also be, to be honest, HIPAA or COBRA issues that could arise if you have a plan sponsored in this form. But for right now, we're just going to deal with the tax aspects of this because traditionally we're looking at, in many cases on the self-employed deduction, a person who only has themselves as part of the business. There there are no other employees and there's no one else we're going to need to worry about in this regard. Now, the Chief Counsel Memorandum issued this year agrees essentially that we can pay for an individual policy and treat that as the policy provided for under the plan of the business. Uh, the question that was asked specifically involved for their policy issue the individual's name as opposed to the business name was deductible under 162L, assuming all of the requirements are met. The Chief Counsel Memorandum, which we must remember is not really binding, but is very suggestive to IRS personnel, agrees that such a deduction is allowed under the law. Interesting aside question, must such a plan be written? Well, you look at the history on Section 104, And generally, it's been held that we don't need a written plan so long as the plan exists. The code itself provides no requirement, either under 106 or 162, that the plan be written. Now, that's unlike the provisions we find in other parts of the law, such as qualified plans or even for health insurance-related coverage. Section 125D1 for cafeteria plans, including premium-only plans, requires a written document. If there are employees, generally the plan must be communicated to the employees under the 106. That's where the courts have looked. Did you tell people you had a plan so that there was a plan? But since there are no discrimination rules in this area, there may be very little real impact of that requirement. Meaning, did I inform the people who get the coverage? Because I can exclude people pretty much at will as long as my plan is there. Any employee benefiting on a plan would generally be aware of it while exclude employees would not be so informed. Uh, Now, realize if you do have a written plan, your written plan claims you cover all employees, but you actually don't, you may have more problems because if you're not following the written plan that you claim to have followed, you may find that the IRS could rule you did not have a plan, or at least your coverage wasn't provided under that plan. So, in fact, a written plan, in some sense, if you're not going to follow it exactly, could be more of a problem than a benefit. Now, the... Finally, note the deduction is limited to the income from the trade or business for which the plan is established. The Chief Counsel Memorandum makes it clear that this is measured on a business-by-business basis. It is not a test on overall earnings from self-employment. That again, Chief Counsel Advice 2005-24001 is what we're talking about here. This rule requirement can be both a trap and a benefit to the self-employed individual. Uh, if the individual has two trades or businesses, we can end up in a trap. If they're both profitable, we paid the insurance, but the insurance is under a plan for the one that didn't quite earn enough to give, make the whole payment deductible. Note that as well, under this, under this theory, the IRS could force you to show which business the plan of insurance was established under And if you can't show why it's this one versus that one, the IRS could argue that there is no plan because, you know, we have to know which business it's related to. While the CCA doesn't make it real clear, uh, it appears that you could not have a plan established after the fact. In essence, the payments have to be made under the plan, present tense, made. Thus, if you find at the end of the year that business A had a net loss, business B had income, but you'd establish a plan under A, you're out of luck. Only the one with sufficient income allows the entire deduction. Now, that said, you might consider whether it is possible to have both businesses offer the plan and then try to do it, but that probably is getting too cute by saying both of them offered it, but I took it under this one, not that one. On the positive side, this ruling opens up the opportunity to obtain a business for health insurance even if a new startup business generating a loss. If you can segregate these into two separate businesses and make the argument there are two together, you can give for the health insurance under the profitable business and still have the loss business uh, on the other side and isolate that from the health insurance. There's a second limitation that's important here on deduction. is one that's unique to the self-employed. The taxpayer is ineligible for the benefit for any calendar month in which for any part of the month the taxpayer was eligible to participate in a subsidized health plan maintained by any employer of the taxpayer or of the spouse of the taxpayer, Section 162L2B. There's not a lot of guidance as to what these terms mean, and there are a few terms in here that aren't real clear. Let's take a look at a few of them. First, employer. A question has arisen. Does employer include former employer? In essence, can I get COBRA coverage? That is not clear from the statute which way it goes. The broad point of view would say that we're looking for this, we're looking for the fact that deductions are to be interpreted narrowly, and Congress was looking to fix a very specific problem with people who didn't have employers providing these subsidized plans. In that view, any previous employer would count for this purpose if they're subsidizing or if there's any subsidy involved. Therefore, in that that extent, then we may have a problem for anybody who gets past the Medicare age because arguably Medicare, under that view of employer, would be an employer-provided coverage. Why? Half of the Medicare tax was paid by the employer, the Medicare tax that at least in theory funds this benefit, was paid by the employer in prior years. Therefore, we have an employer-subsidized plan. So only if an individual had been self-employed their entire life could arguably the Medicare not be an employer-provided, subsidized, an employer-subsidized plan. That could be a problem. Is it also employer-provided? Well, we're not sure, but, you know, it kind of falls under this. The current employer-only camp would argue that the courts look at undefined Terms as are used in general conversation. And the term employer suggests a present tense relationship. My employer is the person writing my paycheck today, not the person I may have worked for 30 years ago. That person is not, that entity is not my employer. As well, in the qualified plan arena, where we're limited to coverage for employees uh, in the plan for my benefit for employees. We can't put, put and fund additional benefits or put and make contributions on behalf of the former employees cannot be thrown into the plan uh, after the year they separate from service. We can't allow them to continue to defer into, their, into our 401k because their new employer didn't have a 401k. That doesn't work. The fact they were an employee doesn't give us any rights to bring them in and make a benefit of them today. And the argument would go as well if Congress met past employers, they could easily have said that in their statement. The second problem is what is a subsidized plan offered by the employer? Key problem here if my employer offers a plan and it pays for my coverage and offers that my spouse can be put on the coverage, but I have to pay the full marginal additional cost to the spouse for the spouse. Is that a subsidized plan? If my spouse's coverage, if I have to pay the full marginal cost. A couple of views here. View one says no. Subsidized means the employer must bear part of that marginal cost. If the employer does not, then it's not subsidized. View two is if any part of the coverage is subsidized, then it seems to be subsidized. Or if the group plan gives us access to a better rate due to the, and that plan was partially employer subsidized, then at least in theory, I'm picking up a benefit from the employer's subsidy indirectly by getting a better rate for my spouse than I could get otherwise under a standalone plan. In that case, my spouse would not be eligible to get the deduction under her business, or even better, if I pay for my spouse, I can't treat that as a self-employed health insurance payment. If it's not a subsidized plan, there would be an argument that maybe I could even treat that as a subsidized as a payment itself. Well, because of these uncertainties, clients who don't have a clear cut case of being qualified need to be counseled about the potential issues and the potential items that are involved. Clients need to understand the potential risk, the potential advantages and disadvantages of each position, and then take a look at what goes forward from there. Finally, let us remember that there is now another option on the horizon, though it presents its own problems. Health savings accounts arguably may solve some problems that we have with the self-employed. Remember, the self-employed cannot qualify for a medical reimbursement plan, unlike a Schedule C. We can only get the self-employed health insurance deduction. However, if we establish a health savings account and provide and obtain the high deductible coverage, even if I obtain that coverage and I'm not eligible to take that as a deduction, under the self-employed health insurance because I was eligible to be covered under my spouse's plan or I had some other problem that prevented me from getting into this, if I even can do that, if I have that problem of or not enough income, I still can take this deduction plus I can still move that, take it on Schedule A, probably get no benefit, but also turn around and still make my contribution to the HSA and get that deduction for the health savings account funding above the line. In essence, get my medical reimbursement plan in a prepaid form deducted above the line. What's the problem with HSAs? What I have found talking to clients, the problem with HSAs has been rather simple. Clients generally do not want to change medical insurance. Many are very nervous about doing so. Secondly, many find that it's more difficult, and their choices are far more limited, to get an HSA-qualified policy. One of the key problems we're going to have moving forward is the limits on reimbursements before we've hit the deductible limit, and that over time is going to include prescription drug benefits, and that's something that many of us take advantage of in our health insurance. Personally, I have not had a claim against the policy generally for standard medical claims, In quite a while. The major claims I've had against the policy that is provided by my firm have primarily been in lab tests, which they provide, and on top of that, in the prescription drug benefit, the second one being a much bigger benefit in my case. In that situation, though, if I went for an HSA, I would have to absorb the cost of the prescription drugs against my HSA account or pay it out of pocket separately. Again, we need to consider these issues and move forward. This is Tax Update number 5 for the week of July sixteenth, two 2005. This tax podcast is intended for tax professionals and is not designed for those not skilled in independent tax research. Please take care to confirm all of the conclusions stated in this program prior to applying them in a real-life tax situation. Details of this podcast can be found at dot. L I B S Y N dot com, and materials for this podcast can be found at the EdZollers dot com website. This has been the Tax Podcast number five for July sixteenth, two thousand five.